all know about the religious right, but there is a much stronger tradition of a religious left in America. I'm Bert Cohen. Stay tuned. We are keeping democracy alive with your help. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. was a flashy picture presented to the world, a show of unique unity and political strength in the United Kingdom recently when the Queen's Jubilee celebrated Queen Elizabeth's 70 years on the tr- throne. One aspect that stood out was the unified identity. There's the throne, the state, and the Anglican Church all together as one. Well, that's not how we do things in America. Separation of church and state is a foundational part of who we are. At least that's what our founders intended. Our guest today accurately notes, quote, Christian nationalism is perhaps the most potent religious political movement in the country today, unquote. Christian nationalism is thriving. Where is the religious left, he asks. Religion is supposed to be on one side of the wall, the state on the other. But when the two are combined, a new greatly enhanced political power, a profoundly anti-democratic, blatantly oppressive state, does result when you combine the two. The struggle between republics and a fascist authoritarian government is a dynamic that has plagued the world for around a century. Sinclair Lewis said, when fascism comes to America, it will be wrapped in a flag and carrying a cross. Boy, do we know that. Barry Goldwater, who at the time was accused of being too far to the right, said, mark my word, if and when these preachers get control of the party, the Republican Party, and they're sure trying to do so, it's going to be a terrible damn problem. Frankly, these people frighten me. Politics and governing demand compromise, but these Christians believe they're acting in the name of God, so they can't and won't compromise. I know I've tried to deal with them. Good old Barry Goldwater. And he also said, religion has no place in public policy. Some people today disagree with that and are actively trying to change that and uh, make public policy subservient to their religion. Americans are known, yes, to be a religious people across the world, but more so than lots of other countries. But that's changing, and the religious right knows it and is, in that light, waging an all-out culture war, which has the potential to affect everyone's traditional rights. A recent Gallup poll indicates that religious membership in the U.S. has fallen to just 47% among those surveyed, representing less than half the adult population for the first time since Gallup began asking the question more than 80 years ago. Now that 47% is down from 70% in 1999. That's where the dangerous energy of Christian nationalism comes in. 
That's the spark plug for it, this concern, this determination to take over. But is this really what the Christian religion is all about? Imposing a narrow set of morals on all of us? Maybe there is a left tradition in Christianity too, as those values, at least to me, seem more in keeping with the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, our guest today is Quadricos Bernard Driscoll, whose article in The Hill, which I encourage you all to read, asks, Christian nationalism is thriving. Where is the religious left? Driscoll is adjunct professor in legislative affairs, the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. Thanks so much for being with us, Quadricos. Absolutely, Bert. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, the passion of what used to be called tent revival meetings, remember them, is being summoned by such characters as Marjorie Taylor Greene, a first-term member of Congress, hopefully last-term member of Congress, from Georgia. The intensity of a war is a uniquely powerful organizing tool. And that, let's face it, we don't need, as, as she says, uh, the, the religious, uh, she recognized that the religious nationalists have the intensity of a war, and we, who are not religious nationalists, do not have that intensity of an organizing tool. And that's a real disadvantage to us. As Marjorie Taylor Greene says, we don't need more gun control. We need to return to God, as she sees God. Though there's no question people who want gun laws that work to keep assault weapons off our streets and neighborhoods, the gun worshipers have a singular focus. When I was in the state senate, most people in New Hampshire, where I served, wanted sensible gun laws. But the gun lobbyists have a single focus. We are focused on all kinds of different issues. And that's a problem. Guns are their big issue. We are diverse in our interests. I wonder if that's, if there's a unique problem for the non-right and that the right is clear, organized, and well-funded. What is the challenge for the religious left when it comes to gun safety? How do you speak about that? I think the challenge for the religious left when it comes to gun safety, um, first, I, I think we we have to kind of take a step back and, and, and find and see realize and realize that the religious left has always had deep roots in American history, right? Um, from the abolitionist movement to the establishment of hospitals. Um, certainly in the past several decades, we've seen liberal Christians who have been relatively, unfortunately, silent about their faith and how it informs their political views. But the religious left has always sort of grappled with these issues of how do we ensure true religious freedom, where Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, everyone, and even the non-religious, non-faith could have access, and access to freedom, right? Hence, religious freedom. And so when it comes to this particular issue of gun safety, mm -hmm. no one wants to take away guns, right? right. That's not, and the, certainly that's not what the religious, the political religious left is saying. But what we are saying is no different than, of course, when unfortunately 9-11, September 11 of 2001 happened, there were laws that were changed 
to ensure, of course, safety for all Americans and all individuals traveling. As we have seen in the recent decades, if we are going to maintain our Second Amendment rights, which again, we all want to do, how do we make guns safe? That is the crux of the argument. And the challenge for the religious left is really communicating that. I think they have done a very good job of communicating that, but it but part of the polis, politics, the city-state, is you have these two competing ideas. And part of, of the, the gun rights or the gun fanatics, I would argue, is rooted in Christian nationalism, mm. right? It is God, guns, and country. Or if you're from the South, gun, God's country, and grits. All right. right. So that is the challenge for the religious left when it comes to the issue of gun safety. And I will even argue well beyond just the issue of guns. I think when it comes to most issues, it is looking at, as you mentioned earlier, how the crux of Jesus of Nazareth talked a lot about these issues that aren't draconian and that don't put mandates on people, but that in, that, that ensures liberty. I think part of the challenge is, and I'll end by saying this theologically, Christian conservatives, Christian nationalism view Jesus as one who saves, he sends salvation, right? And part of that salvation is this sort of ideal of religious purity, right? These sins that we have committed and that somehow God is keeping a list of our sins and he's checking it twice, right? (laughs) Yes. The religious left sees Christ as a liberator, one who frees us from the shackles of our either personal traumas or societal traumas to which we can ensure freedom for all. And that, and and it's an oversimplification, but it is the theological difference and how that theological difference plays out in the body of politics. It's such an interesting problem here that the the more traditional, I would say, Christian uh, religion uh, as you say, fav- is is for liberating people, and uh, of course for for safety, um, and w- worshiping guns is something that it seems like that is such a big part of the religious right that somehow guns equal freedom. The Christian left, and I would say other left as well, uh, you know, people who are spiritual uh, believe in 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 freedom, but we don't def- we don't limit freedom to mean guns. How wh- what do you think about why are why have guns become such a a th- that freedom means guns? When you say freedom, that's all it is 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 guns. How does any idea how how that uh, happened? I mean, was it the uh, the change in the NRA back in 1979 when they became, you know, guns everywhere. They, they used to be for gun safety. But how, how did it uh, 
this this Christian nationalism worship of guns and 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 defining freedom strictly in terms of guns. How did that happen? Well, you know, Bert, I think, frankly, you have to go back to the founding of this country, right? Which is why we have the Second Amendment to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Um, part of why the Second Amendment exists, part of, you know, rare, well-regulated militia, a part of the founding of our country, of America, is unfortunately rooted in violence and is rooted in guns. And so when we juxtapose that to Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism, as we know, is this cultural framework that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. And so as we think about the founding of our country, and which is, you know, frankly, rooted in violence, well-regulated militia, yes. combining those two we we see this sort of um, <clears throat> idolatrous worship in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Because Christian nationalism contends that America has been and shall always be distinctly Christian from top to bottom. It is this sort of self-identity and its interpretation of its own history uh, as well as sacred symbols. One of those sacred symbols are guns. No different than what we, of course, saw, unfortunately, January 6th, we saw those symbols and how they played out, right? Gallows, which again was a form of execution. Uh, The cross, the cross itself, certainly during biblical times, we, of course, know represents Christianity and Christ, but it was an execution. In fact, uh, in the more liberal traditions, particularly black religious liberal Christian traditions, you know, the cross was a lynching, in fact. Yeah. Another symbol that we saw was flags during 9-11. And we saw the Christian flag, right, as well as the Confederate flag. So we began to think about symbols and what symbols mean to the religious left, Christian nationalists, per the symbols I mentioned, but guns are is one of those symbols. Mm. And we do need symbols. Symbols, uh, I mean, it's a very complicated world, and symbols simplify things, and uh, we, we do tend to like things uh, simplified. And, and what you're saying about, uh, I mean, the reality is we were founded on violence, and I had a college professor many, many years ago who defined politics as the economy of violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A police officer has legitimate use of violence. You don't need to see it actually used, but you know it's there. You know it's there, exactly. And so what about, well, a couple things. Looking from a historical point of view, tracing the rise of Christian nationalism and I wonder where it fits in with Christian history, as opposed to uh, Christian, the, the religious, uh, the Christian left, the religious left. What's the history of, of both? And you know, maybe just in the past hundred years or so. Well, you know, the threat of Christian nationalism certainly is not new. 
uh, we did this movement, which again promotes this idea to be that to be a real American, that one must be Christian, is is growing with this sort of dangerous intensity. Um, it is not only pushed beyond. They, they not only Christian nationalists push legislation that advocates for a revisionist historical view of the United States, but they kind of promote um, government-sponsored religious exercise, right? Yeah. Uh, which also unfortunately inspires religious hate crimes and arson and, and deadly attacks on houses of worships, right? And the same thing we know, of course, is happening abroad. Mm. I would contend that slavery, of course, in America, um, enabled white Christians or Christian nationalists by asserting that enslaved Africans were not human, uh, in part by using scripture to justify its support of it. Um, what we, of course, also know is that even when you go to West Africa and you look at the door no return in Ghana and other places, um, above, we, we know that chapels were in some of those slave ports, and above, over, over those chapels was... Um, we're doing this for Christ, I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. for, for our Lord. Um, you also had, of course, um, Southern slaveholding pastors and elected officials justify slaveholding in Christianity, treaties written by individuals like Thomas Dew and, and James Henry Caldwell, who defended slavery and white dominance on scriptural grounds. Uh, these teachings were influenced by denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, who often who split over the issue of slavery, right? Uh, and then, of course, when the South declared war, the Confederate States of America uh, were established to be a Christian nation. Uh, and in fact, it, I think it was kind of rooted invoking the presence of an almighty God to ordain and to establish the Constitution for the, for the Confederate States of America. And so when we think about the rise of Christian history, I think we have to go back a little bit further than just the last, say, 40, 50 years, because, again, it is rooted in the identity and in the culture of America. Juxtapose that, of course, to uh, Christian or the religious left, who also, going back to the founding of America, when you think about the Great Awakenings, right, and in the late I want to say, uh, if my memory is correct, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, with um, Walter Rusenbusch, of course, known as the father of the social gospel movement, is, is really when the roots of religious liberty uh, began to, to take place. I would argue, and there are some African-American and religious historians who would also argue that, of course, the enslaved people... Um, and how apropos, of course, this is Juneteenth, the enslaved people knew that there was a difference between what they were being taught, mm-hmm. often by the white slaveholding preachers, versus <clears throat> what they were experiencing, what they knew God, uh, both in their native country as well as in America. And even when we begin to think about the spiritual, I got a robe you got to robe all God's children, got to robe. But the second verse of that, the spiritual is everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And so they knew that there was a contradiction rooted in an evilness versus mm-hmm. what they were being told 
and what they were experiencing and how they were experiencing God. So I, that's, that's very perhaps long and historical answer to your question, but I think it is important to understand that Christian nationalism and even uh, the religious left, Christian religious left, goes back well beyond just 40 uh-huh. or 30 or so years. Yeah, well, as somebody said on the show, I wish I could remember who, it's important that we think with history. We never, we never do. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Quadricos Bernard Driscoll, whose article in The Hill asks about Christian nationalism. It's thriving. Where is the religious left? And as you talk, it makes me wonder, you know, kind of which came first. There was the so-called settling of the American West and slavery, all of which was done uh, to to help these poor, uh, less than people, you know, find God the way we want them to find God, you know, so that, uh, you know, they, they converted uh, the indigenous people of America uh, as, as, I don't know which came first, really. I mean, religious nationalism, I guess it's, it's always been there. You know, they, they, they kind of felt like, their goal, their mission, which is of course a, a religious feeling, uh, is to uh, to civilize these poor souls, and so it seems like Christian nationalism is. Uh, I hate to say this, because there's other uh, trends in American history. That's not the only trend, uh, but it's been with us ever since the beginning. And I don't know which came first: Christian nationalism or or slavery and racism. Well, it's, I think we have to see it all, frankly, as one. Uh, there is an, an article by um, a religious historian. She's out of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and um, Thea Butler writes that Christian nationalism is really white Christian nationalism. Yeah. Um, and, she, and she simply puts it that it is the belief that the founding of America is based on Christian principles and white Protestant Christianity, yes. and it, it is the oper the um, oper the operating of religion in the land, or using uh. religion to achieve political and policy goals, uh-huh. right? Um, and so, it's this kind of Christian nationalism that is, in fact, rooted in white supremacy rooted in this revisionist idea of America uh, combined with the fact that there is one nation under God, one religion under God, one nation under God, one religion under God, that being the example of how white Christian nationalism operates. Oh, lovely. Yeah, and it just, I mean... White, white supremacy, it seems like, uh, I don't know if there are any uh, religious nationalists who are not also uh, white supremacists. It's, I mean, look at uh, January 6th, you're right, they, right. And, on, well, and on and on. Go ahead. And even if you look at the 21st century, which is the present way we mentioned 9-11, uh, the nation was, of course, revealing from the attacks and, and stigmatized 
frankly, Muslims, Sikhs, yeah. and others who were and others who were deemed as quote others because of their religious belief. Others, right, right, uh, exactly. And so we we have seen this, and even when, of course, with the election of President Barack Obama, the nation's first black president. Uh, brought out some of those fringe elements of Christian nationalism. We didn't have that. We didn't use these terms then. But the rise of the Tea Party in 2019, yeah. which we, we thought was more an economic movement, mm. but really had its roots in Christian nationalism. And so we, we have to begin to see the intersectionality of all of how all of this transpired and how all of this came in, into being. Um, and, and so that's why, again, looking at going to the 1950s with organizations like the White Citizens Council, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of this, all of this, I, I recall a sign, if you Google it, it says um, there's a picture, it's the, the Ku Klux Klan, and behind them is a banner that says Jesus Saves. Yeah. All of this is white nationalism. And so we have to really begin to see how white supremacy, how racism, uh, how the founding of our country, for good or for bad, is rooted in this concept of this Christian identity. And, it, and it's a, specifically, as Thea Butler argues, is this white Christian identity. And there are a lot of us who consider ourselves patriotic Americans who are not white Christian nationalists. And, and I will say... My generation, yes, I'm a baby boomer, uh, we scared the heck out of them with our dancing together. That's why they hate rock and roll, is because black kids and white kids were dancing together. Oh, my God. (laughs) No, you're you're absolutely right. Um, And then the 60s came, right? The sort of the sexual revolution. And then we know that those, the Jerry Falwells of the world and the Pat Buchanan's, um, that was a movement to sort of ban pornography, right? So all of this is certainly rooted in, in the ideal of Christian nationalism per the Christian right. So there was, they were using religion and Christianity in quotations to advance their political and social and legislative agenda. Fascinating. So their real goal if I'm hearing you right, maybe, you know, white nationalist, uh, white rule, uh, authoritarian, uh, not a lot of uh, freedom of thought and, and freedom to be able to read and say what you want. And religion kind of works real nicely to justify that. Uh, right. <laughs> if I could just please, you know, put it, it truncated. Um, part, I think, of, of the, um, and according, this is according to many academic studies, uh, large and small, Americans who embrace Christian nationalism are more likely, not always, but more likely to approve of authoritative tactics like uh, demanding people show respect for national symbols and traditions. Uh. Right. They tend to fear and distrust religious minorities, so including Muslims, atheists, Jews, in some mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. They tend to condone police violence towards black Americans and distrust accounts of racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Uh, they tend to believe that racial inequality is due to personal shortcomings of certain minority or racial groups. Of course. Um, they report being completely uncomfortable with transracial adoption or interracial marriage. 
they tend to hold anti-immigrant views and, and tend to refuse refugees. And, and unfortunately, some, again, not all, tend to oppose scientists and science education in schools and, and believe that men are better situated in leadership roles than women. Of course. <laughs> of course. And I, I read a while ago a woman who posted on Facebook saying uh, with, she, she did not want science to interfere with the beliefs she's teaching her children. Okay, I get that. We see that around, here. and I wonder if it's if it's starting to change. I mean, there's, uh, I, I come from a large generation, the baby boomers, but there's a sort of a, I don't know, an echo boom or something like that. There's a lot of young people these days, Generation X, Y, whatever the heck it's called. I have no idea, but uh, young people, they seem. I have, maybe I'm naive, but I, I feel like I have a, a fair amount of hope. In, in the young people these days, people in their 20s and 30s. And the U.S. tendency to run counter to international trends on religiosity has long fascinated social scientists. For a long time ago, Alexis de Tocqueville, in the early 19th century, the political thinker, discussed at length the outsized role religion played in the American society in his uh, famous book, Democracy in America. But in the 2020s, American adults under the age of 40 are less likely to pray than their elders, less likely to attend church services, and less likely to identify with any religion, all of which may pretend future declines in levels of religious commitment. Maybe it's the image they're selling <clears throat> that isn't being embraced by young people. Maybe it's not religion per se but maybe they're wising up to it. Quadricos, you're on campuses with young people. Is there a Christianity, a vision, which might connect with this generation, one that encompasses concern for the environment, a stewardship of the earth, for example, and a celebration of the equal rights of all God's creation that may be there? What do you see? Give me some hope, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's. I, I'm also not only a professor, but I'm also a Baptist preacher. So there's always ah. hope. Um, with that said, I, I hasten to remind you, Bert, that you know when we begin to, unfortunately, going back to your question around guns, when we begin to look at some of the mass shootings in this country, right. including uh, the the shooting at um, in Charleston at Emmanuel um, Mother Emmanuel Baptist. Mother Manuel Amy Church, excuse me, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, right. that was a white male, yes, right? Yes. Um, and so we we still unfortunately see that there are fringe, right? I want to make be sure to be clear about that. There are fringe elements where fringe groups and societies they're still be being converted to the unfortunately these very fascist, racist thoughts. But certainly, I think um, Christianity. Um, there is room for concerns for the environment, stewardship of the earth, equal rights for all, uh, which includes um, the diversity of human sexual orientation and gender. The, the challenge, however, and the problem, I think, is that Christian, in, in quotations, has uh -huh. become a secondary term to give a righteous edge to your political identity. Uh. So when most people hear the adjective Christian, or they think Christian, they immediately begin to associate Christianity with those who 
are conservative Christians uh, rooted in either Christian fundamentalism or Christian nationalism, and they don't think of the religious left. I grew up, I've obviously been African-American black my entire life and grew up religious left my entire life. And, and so <clears throat> this is, is, has not been new for me in, in part because of the you know, historical traumatic experience of African-Americans in this country. So I think that there has to be, and this is why I, I wrote the article, because the religious left, Christian religious left particularly, has mm -hmm. always been in the fabric of this country. I think their, their voice needs to be louder. And it needs to be louder because, again, when most people think or hear the term Christian or Christianity, they immediately associate it with the more evangelical fundamentalist roots of it. And that's not the totality of Christianity. And, and juxtapose that when we think, even look at the numbers, and I think Gallup just came out with a recent poll that really looked at the belief of God. Um, 60% of liberals, 68% of young people, and I, I read this this morning, that's how I'm able to quote these numbers, 72% of Democrats say they believe in God. And that's a huge distinction between political conservatives, uh, whereas 94% of them say they believe in God, and with Republicans, 92% of them say they believe in God. So, and, and this is, of course, widening statistics when we just go back 10 years ago. So there, there is this growing notion that now to believe in God is to believe in racism and, and, and Christian nationalism. And, and so I think it, it's incumbent upon those to your point who may be white, maybe patriotic or other religious minority or racial minority to be vocal and, and espouse and say, this is not what Christianity is. Uh, this is not what God represents. This is not what Christ represents. Wow. And one can certainly understand why there are forces on the right that want to erase history, absolutely erase it and replace it with what they insist is, is real. And when you talk about you know a long tradition, the reality is, much as nobody seems to get this, but there's a strong history of, never mind a religious left, a political left in America. It's been around a long time since Absolutely. since Shay's Rebellion, for heck's sake. You know, it's right. it's it's, it's it, this is part of who we are, and right. we, as you say, we need to. Uh, well, you didn't say shout it from the rooftops, but we need to be upfront about this, I think, and not let, you know, back in the late 60s during the war in Vietnam, we on the left let the right own the flag. Big mistake. Big mistake. Because we're Americans too. We, we definitely believe in American principles. And to let the other side have that completely when there is room for uh, working together and to understand our history. Fascinating subject here. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Quadricos Bernard Driscoll, a Baptist minister whose article in The Hill asks about Christian nationalism. Where is the religious left? Well, it, it has been there a long time. And 
Some of the listeners, I like to think, have heard of Moral Mondays. These, these are North Carolina-based events that are led by the Reverend uh, Liz Theo Harris, who's been on the show a couple times, along with the Reverend William Barber, and they co-chair the Poor People's Campaign, which, if that sounds familiar, it's because it was started by another Reverend, Martin Luther King. They don't, they don't want us to see it. American history is rich with examples of liberal Christianity, such as these Moral Mondays. As you write, Despite more recent conventional thinking, the religious left has always had deep roots in American history from the abolitionists to the civil rights movement. Uh, Might right-wing nationalism be a blip while this religious left is actually more of a constant in American history? The wealth inequality of the 1890s being so similar to what we experience today, uh, a hopeful example of religious left, as you point out, is the Christian reaction to the incredibly unfair Gilded Age capitalism. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, you know, when we, when we really began to, uh, to think about um, what people like um, Reverend Liz and, and, and Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, um, I think a, a hopeful sign, perhaps the most poignant hopeful sign outside of the, those two individuals, and it's certainly there are others. Um, Jim Wallace comes to mind, right? Who's yes. still very active. Yes. Uh, but from a political and policy perspective, the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, who was the first ah. African American senator from my home state of Georgia, right on. I think really personifies. Uh, in, in multiple ways, uh, the religious left. Ah. He is the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is not only Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, but it was also Martin Luther King Jr.'s grandfather's church. Most people don't know that. And it hmm. was also his father's church. So, right, so Martin King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s third generation Baptist preacher. And here, Raphael Warnock is the senior pastor of uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Uh, a historical black church we know, of course, rooted in, 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 and I would add, the Christian tradition, and more specifically, the African-American Christian tradition or religious tradition. And he is a, a Baptist preacher, obviously, who is now also a United States senator Indeed. from the South, who articulates expanding Medicaid who articulates gun safety, who articulates healthcare for all, who articulates stewardship over the environment, who articulates ensuring or, or extending the child tax credit, right? And he, and he articulates all of these issues from a religious perspective. As a Christian and as a Baptist minister, and, and specifically he's American Baptist and, and progressive Baptist. And so, this, you know, Senator Warnock, Reverend Senator Warnock, is in some ways the hope as well as the personification mm-hmm. of the religious left. And, and what he's espousing, what he's articulating, again, there, there are others. Um, sure. the, uh, I, uh, his name is escaping me. Oh, Senator Chris Coons from Delaware, uh-huh. who actually has a theological education from Yale Divinity School. I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, 
Yes, as, as a, although although Senator Coons is not a, a minister, he has a theological education. Uh, but so there there are other individuals who who espouses this sort of religious left in a way that ensures that the religious left, uh, from a Christian perspective, and how it informs their policies. I think again, more individuals need, which is the point of my article. Those on the religious left, those who on the Christian religious left, need to certainly be more vocal about how their faith informs their policy. Because so often Mm. what we have seen has been um, the religious right Right. utilizing or using religion to achieve uh, their electoral as well as policy goals. Fascinating. And it amazes me how uh, (laughs) the person who is running against uh, Reverend Warnock is a football player, I believe. I mean, Herschel Walker, is that, do I have the right state? Yeah, you you have the right state. Um, And and Herschel Walker has a a host of issues uh, yeah. That I would argue, frankly, contradict um, many of what the the Republican Party, uh, at least the Republican Party of old, used to stand on. Oh yeah. But 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 that aside, um, when it comes to this idea of what religious liberty is and communicating it um, in the public square, we need more individuals like a Raphael Warnock. Um, and Emmanuel Cleaver also comes to mind. A uh, John Lewis, who was also, oh, yeah. uh, who c- certainly has since passed away, but who was also um, ordained minister. And, and there are several others. So just because one is an ordained minister doesn't necessarily mean they're of the far right. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they actually stand for what Jesus stood for. I know. What a exactly. concept. What a concept. It's far fetched, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> And uh, I will confess I've sent some money to Reverend Warnock, and I will send more after this. I, he's just, ah, uh, he's so terrific. And you, I, I hadn't really put it together how he uh, symbolizes the, a, a different, uh, a more, I think, real, uh, less political, more religious and faith-oriented uh, a form of uh, politics and, and religion coming together. Uh, and my goodness, I hope he wins. It's amazing that they can put up still- <laughs> Now, I do find it interesting, and this sort of is revealing how the Christian nationalists, the religious nationalists uh, work and what their real goals are. Many years ago, they did, some Christian nationalists did some polling and found that the issue that connects with middle Americans more than any other was abortion. So that's what they went with. It's not that it was so important to them, but they found it connected. Polling indicated it connected. So that's what they went with. The formula worked. The hot-button topics of sexual morality and limits of acceptable gender identity got, as you say, conflated with other non-cultural topics such as tax cuts, deregulation, school vouchers, anti-immigration, no racism there or anything, not much, huh? Uh, and a fully rigid embrace of the Second Amendment's perceived rights. So all these things got 
got conflated, as you say, with with because uh, they found that this issue, the abortion issue, uh, resonated with people. So, and Barry Goldwater knew the dangerous power of mixing these unrelated issues. How close has the right come to actually achieving these religious political goals? Do you think? Well, just as uh, Senator Raphael Warnock is the manifestation, I think, of the uh, religious left and Christian religious left particularly, Trump, although not particularly Christian himself, was the manifestation of Christian nationalism. And so to your question, how close have they come to achieving sort of religious political goals? I think they've come quite close. Um, When we we begin to think about the overwhelming majority of the Supreme Court, right? Because to your point, abortion was that number one issue. And how best to achieve the goal of limiting a woman's reproductive rights than to stack the federal judiciary with jurists who are against Roe v. Wade, right? The 1973 Supreme Court decision. That has been their goal. And seemingly, they have achieved such, right? Uh, We know, of course, with the leak of the Supreme Court case, uh, we have not heard the official ruling yet, but uh, I, it is expected to be out any day now. So if in order for us to be, really begin to grasp the role of Christian nationalism uh, in this and other recent political developments, it's, it's helpful for us to know something about the movement itself, its structures, its forms of operation, and its ultimate goals. Right? Because again, this... The movement has used religion and has understood it as a set of religious as well as theological positions that were assumed to lead to a certain type of society and politics uh, that first and foremost supported their cause. So the principal goal and the goal of most of their leaders was power. Yes. And how best to achieve power um, was through using Christian terms or Christianity uh, or the use of religion to achieve their political power. And the strength of the movement was in this sort of dense organizational infrastructure Um, this closely interconnected network of right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy organizations, legislative initiatives, sophisticated data operations, networking groups, leadership training initiatives, and the list goes on. And, and, And they worked collaboratively with, by and large, the Republican National Committee. Um, and so when we begin just to realize how deep and how operational and structural this movement has been, uh, then we can really begin to see the manifestations of how much they just have achieved uh, in our society today. And we're experiencing that. And again, that unfortunately was felt January 6th of 2021. Yep, they felt that they were being righteous, and they had all those symbols there, 
the flag, the, the uh, gallows, everything to enforce. Uh, and they somehow, I mean, as most people know, I mean, violence is there. Violence is part of our history. And sometimes people can legitimate violence for uh, political ends. But uh, it's it's not over yet. We're talking here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today with uh, is Quadricos Bernard Driscoll, who's got an article asking about uh, Christian nationalism and where is the religious left. It is there, people, for sure. And in 2005, Jim Wallace wrote a book about uh, describing a vision of the religious left called God's Politics, interesting title, which was described by the author as a new vision for faith and politics in America based on prophetic religion's imperatives of justice, compassion, peace, and hope. What happened to that? I mean, that seems like a long time ago, and it's not very well known now. You're right. That was 2005. Frankly, that's that's when I graduated college. Uh (laughs) And so... I think part of what Jim Wallace was doing and part of what we have to continue to do again, hence my article is that we have to continue telling this narrative, continue telling that this new vision of faith in politics is grounded in a prophetic vision that is of justice, that is of compassion, that is of empathy, and that is of love and hope. And that when we think about our public policy crises, um, and as well as solutions are all rooted in justice, in compassion, in empathy, which peace and hope and love, which are precepts and principles throughout most of the world's religious traditions. So we have to keep telling the story. We we have to yeah. keep having the conversation. Um, and there are organizations that that do a very good job of that. Um, the, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty being one. The yeah. Freedom from Religious Foundation is another. And there are, there are several others. And so we have to keep telling the story that Christianity is not solely rooted in Christian nationalism. That there is... And there are organizations and individuals and institutions and initiatives, perhaps not as well known, perhaps not as large, um, that are equally fighting for justice, fighting for hope, fighting for peace, fighting for empathy, and that are also Christian, who I would argue follow more the tenets of Jesus than the Christian right. Which I, I have actually seen T-shirts that say Jesus was an American. No, he wasn't. <laughs> Neither was God, right? But there is this distinctive, <laughs> this distinctive thought that somehow God is white, male, right. Christian, and American. Right. Oh, and right. straight, right? Of course. Yeah, and straight, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but you know, but that's so not the case. What what amazes me is how, you know, here we are in in this world where. Uh, uh, there has to be some sort of a action, you know, some sort of a spectacle that gets people's uh, uh, attention here. And the spectacle of, of guns and, you know, January 6th, that's it's not there on the, uh, what I would call the genuine uh, Christian uh, uh, movement, you know, or feelings that... Uh, you say we need a bombastic counter-narrative 
from the religious left, an equally active, politically engaged movement hearkening back to the glory days of social gospel. What, what, was the, what were the glory days of social gospel, and what might it look like in the 2020s? The glory days of social gospel was helping the poor. It was feeding the hungry. It was providing uh, care and relief to the sick. It was taking in those who were different, right? That was uh, the social gospel that emerged in the Gilded Age. During this, during this time in the late 1800s, early 90s of, of tech, well, not tech, well, tech then, certainly, of giants like Carnegie Mellon and Rockefeller, but who extended... <laughs> right? Their social grace, right? Hence the social gospel. What does that look like in, 20, in, in 2020 and in this 21st century? Well, it, it, it looks like the same thing. It looks like extending grace. It looks like extending the hand to the other, whoever the other is. It looks like understanding and empathy and getting to know other people outside of yourself. It, mm. it looks like understanding other traditions, other religious traditions outside of your own. Even if you don't agree with them, I've always preach and I teach that, and frankly, I do this as a, as a lobbyist as well, that if I A, get to know you as a human being, and B, understand your values and where you're coming from, then perhaps we are better better able to sit down and to have a conversation. And unfortunately, what we're not seeing is a lot of that taking place in our civic society, but also in our electoral or political society. There aren't enough politicians who are actually getting to know each other. Mm. And so we can revert back to those days, again, of empathy, of justice, of love, of peace, of being the good Samaritan. And we, we often forget what that text really is about because if we remember correctly, Jews were not supposed to be with Samaritans. Right? It was the person that you were not supposed to help. That was the purpose uh -huh. of, that, of that text. Uh -huh. And so we have to go back to not just being the good Samaritan of helping everybody, but helping the person that society has told you you are to stay away from. And one of the things about America is that we are a nation of immigrants. I mean, some of the uh, indigenous people here might feel a little bit ruffled by that, but the reality is people are coming here. Refugees have, I mean, the image of America that I grew up loving was that Amer people wanted to be here. People from oppressed countries wanted to be here, and people are coming, and People are reaching out and helping immigrants. They're not, I mean, even if they have darker skin than the white people. And, and so it's it's going on. I, I don't know if, uh, sometimes I wonder what else the Republican Party has going for it, if anything. And if, there were, if this, you know, right-wing wackiness were to fall apart, they're not, it's not uh, our father's Republican Party anymore. That's for sure. And I, I, I don't know about the Democrats, if they're uh, afraid to embrace what we're talking about here. But, I, I think that both sides, frankly, um, there are extremities on, on both sides. Um, you, you have the far right, you have the far left, and most Americans are purple. <clears throat> most Americans are probably center right. 
the challenge is not enough of us, again, in civic society, civil society or in political society are listening to one another. We're not understanding other, one another's values and how, how we're approaching that. And when it comes to, and, and it, it's hard to do, right? When a person is coming from two polar opposites, yeah. right? So you have the religious right and you have the religious left. You have Christian nationalism and you have um, the sort of so, social gospel religious left tradition. How can both of those individuals who fit into either of those camps sit mm. down and, and talk? What are the agreed upon principles, right? Well, you know, for one, we all love America, right? We, we all want to do right by, by our fellow human being. I recently read an article which kind of shocked me, frankly, Bert, and it was uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor yes. talking about how her very good friend on the Supreme Court is Justice Clarence Thomas. Shocked me. And she said that they are able to communicate because they both love the institution of the court. Mm -hmm. They both love this country, but they have radical ideas about how best to, to help those people. And what they try to do is that they try, obviously not, you know, not when they're deliberating cases, but they, they try to understand each other's narrative and perspective. Now, I don't think that that's going to change perhaps Justice Thomas's positions or is going to change Justice Sotomayor's position, but they are at least having a conversation and they are at least friends. And I think if those two sort of public figures, again, an article I recently read, can start having those conversations, then I think the average everyday American can get outside of their echo chamber, outside of their little hamlet, and get to know and understand, even if you disagree with someone else who is different than you. Wow. As a uh, someone who is clearly a Christian, it sounds like you have some degree of hope and optimism, and that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> really, Absolutely. Really good to hear. If people are interested in reading more of your uh, work. You can Google me, uh, certainly, or follow me on Twitter, which is Q underscore Driscoll4, um, where, um, and I'm an opinion contributor to The Hill, so you oh. can follow my work there as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us today. And it's, it's, it's good to have uh, some hope and optimism. I have a little bit. <laughs> I do Absolutely. have some. Thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. It's a pleasure being with you.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.